Hey, deserving listeners. Today, I'm going to answer patron emails. But first, I have a little announcement to make. So if you didn't know, all of the episodes are being posted on YouTube as well. Now, if you're a normal YouTube person to this podcast, then you know this. But if you're not, I've been posting all the episodes on YouTube. Now, that's not been a problem if you're listening on your phone app or on Patreon or something. But I'm going to start releasing some episodes that are only on YouTube because they're visual in nature. The first series that I'm doing is on Love is Blind, which is a reality TV show that was on Netflix and has been popular popular lately. And I have been doing reaction videos where I watch the uh, reality TV show and I comment on it. And the reason why I wanted to do it for this was because Love is Blind is about people, if you didn't know, is about people meeting each other without seeing each other. And so they're put in these pods and they talk through this, you know, uh, sound through wall and they date all these different people that way and they fall in love and then they propose and then they finally get to see each other and then they see if their love survives them seeing each other, meeting their families, seeing where they live and all that kind of stuff. And I thought it was a good opportunity for me as a couples therapist to comment on how people come together, how people navigate uh, conflict, differentiation, maturity, uh, all those kinds of things that you know that I like to talk about anyway. And the show provides this example upon which we can learn from. Now, of course, it's a reality TV show and it's produced and it's edited and who knows what the motivation of these people are. But um, long story short, I think that the people are at least somewhat gen- genuine, if not entirely genuine. And so it gives us a good example of how people get triggered, how people react, how people have good communication that's functional, how people have dysfunctional communication. And I was thinking about posting them as an audio only to, you know, the phone apps and Patreon and stuff. But I just thought, you know, it just would lose most of its of its value that way. So it's only going to be on YouTube. The easiest way to make sure that you get the episodes as they come out is to subscribe on YouTube and then click the little bell. That means that you get an email notification every time that we upload a new episode. You don't have to watch it when you get the notification, but it's just kind of nice. You get a little email and you can actually just watch it directly from email. So subscribe, hit the little bell, and you can make sure you never miss an episode. So again, I just really want to route all the people who are listening on their phones if they're interested, to go to YouTube and watch those videos. Stacy, my wife, is going to make a, a playlist that's just going to be for reaction videos, where um, I also have been doing The Sopranos as well. And so it'll just be a playlist just for that. And so if you go to the channel, you can find that playlist, I think. Anyway. Okay. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Let's go on to some emails now. All right, this first email is from patron Robert. He writes, I am taking an individual counseling class. In this class, we are learning the introduction process of a counseling session. We have talked about open and closed-ended questions and the importance of trying to ask open-ended questions to get the clients to communicate. I feel like sometimes I don't know what to ask. Does this ever happen to you? End of email. Yeah, 
In the beginning, I had no idea what to ask. I remember learning, I remember taking the same class that you're taking right now, probably reading similar books, hearing similar lectures, watching similar demonstrations of therapy. And as a student, I just thought like, when I, when I search inside of myself for a question to ask a client, I come up empty <laughs> and what's wrong with me? The, the thing is, is it'll come to you with experience and with good supervision. There's no way for you to know what to do given your experience level. So just, you know, be okay with that. But if I was to provide some kind of short mantras to follow, it would be, what does the client want to change and what kind of questions or activities can you do in therapy that will help them to affect that change? And that's a pretty obvious uh, mantra to follow, but it's often forgotten, honestly, by a lot of novice therapists and frankly, by a lot of therapists. And a lot of supervisors, you know, as you know that I talk about and research has shown this, there's a wide variety of quality of supervisors and instructors for that matter. And some of the instructors and supervisors might be either not great therapists themselves and don't know how to do therapy themselves, or they're just not very good at communicating it or helping novice therapists with this. And so it's important to remember, okay, what does the client want to do in therapy and what do I do to help them to uh, make that change? Now, sometimes those changes can be that the clients want can be either extremely um, uh, ambiguous, like they want to have better self-esteem. It's like, okay, well, how do we get there? But at least you have a direction. Or sometimes clients don't even know what they want in therapy. There are plenty of people come, who come to therapy kind of, they're in a crisis and they they don't even know where to begin about what sort of changes that are possible or what they need to do. Also, if you're working with people who are court mandated or teenagers and kids, there's a lot of times where no one in therapy wants to be in therapy. And how do you motivate people to at least attempt something in therapy, which is a whole other skill set. So there's just a lot of things to think about, but again, Always think about, you know, what what does the client want? And that might be where you start with the questions, you know? You just say, what would you like to do in, in session? Uh, I, whenever I give this direction to novice therapists, I can just see them relax because they're just like, wait, I can ask that? That's It's okay for me to ask that? There's this assumption that therapists are just supposed to detect what a client is supposed to want and supposed to do. And it's per permeated through our society that, like, if you say your life is going badly and you go to a therapist, well, the therapist is just supposed to figure it out for themselves. I've even had clients say that to me before. They'll sit down in my office and I'll be like, okay, well, what would you like to do? And they sort of, uh, you know, beat around the bush. And, you know, after 20 minutes, I'm like, okay, I just want to return to the initial question I had you know, what would you like to get out of therapy? You know, what, what is it that you're here for? And I've had very rarely this happens. You know, I can think of just a handful of times it's happened in my 20 plus years, but I'll have a client that will say, well, you're the doctor, you tell me. And I'll be like, that's not how this works. <laughs> 
you know, you don't go to the dentist and, and the dentist, well, that's probably not a good example because the dentist can actually just look in your mouth. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe if I was to use the dentist analogy, you don't go to the dentist and just sit there in the lobby and the dentist comes out and goes, okay, how can I help you? And you're just like, I don't know, you tell me. And the dentist's like, well, I help people with their, with their teeth and their mouths. And is there, do you have any symptoms? in your in your mouth or teeth that you would like to you know me to help you with and let's say the patient in the lobby is like i don't know you tell me and it's like well (laughs) go home because (laughs) unless you can tell me at least something to grab onto uh, i don't know what to do and i almost feel like we're just playing a game and you're i'm gonna waste your money if by coming here now that's rare you know it's i've had plenty of clients they'll come in and, you know, they they have, uh, they're there on good faith and they're just like, you know what, I don't know, my life is in shambles. I just feel like I just need to talk with someone. And so, so right there, that's, that's a goal. Just, just that little statement. It's like, oh, okay, so your goal in therapy is you want to talk about the chaos in your fam, in your life right now and maybe try to figure out how to sift through it or you just want to get it off your chest or you're looking for some support or you're looking for a perspective. Is that what I'm hearing? And the client will say, yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I want. That's what I want. Oh, okay. So it, it's if kind of an ambiguous goal and yet quite specific it, and very specific enough for me as a therapist to grab onto. I've worked with clients for years just on that alone. Just my life is in shambles. I want someone to talk to. I, I want support. I want uh, some, I just got to get things off my chest I want someone to understand me. I want some perspective. I want someone to confront me when I when I need to be confronted, that kind of thing. So yeah, but anyway, you know, Robert, it's at your stage without any experience and you're being taught all these things like open-ended questions, closed questions, and you're just like, um, I don't know what questions to ask even with that help of making sure to ask open-ended questions. Okay, fine. I'll ask open-ended questions. What open-ended questions do I ask? I have no idea. That's normal. That There's no possible way you would, you would have an, in, an intuition around that. It's not something you're born with. It's something that you learn through experience. Therapy is one of those things that it takes years to even become kind of good at. Now, you can be effective, even though you're not very good as a therapist, but it takes a while, many years, before you, you have this feeling like, okay, I got this. I'm pretty confident that with a typical client, I'm going to be able to you know, muddle my way through a session. In the first few years, that is, that's just not the case. Um, it's, it's just one of those things. It's, a, it's one of the most comp- complicated jobs you could have, in my opinion. It's why after 11 plus years of doing this podcast, I still have a lot to say to you because half of you listeners are clinicians. I still have lots of things to say. You know, if this was a plumbing podcast, I probably would have ran out of stuff a long time ago in terms of like things to say. The other thing here, Robert, is you're saying you're being taught about open and closed ended questions. So this is a universal thing that is taught to uh, novice counselors and therapists. And although it's a good thing to think about for sure, what, you know, these are questions that are close-ended, like, what is your name? Or are you sad today? Or um, did you have a good day? Or, you know, th- those are yes-no questions, very short questions. Whereas, how are you feeling today? Tell me about your feelings. Tell me about how you're doing today. 
those are open-ended questions. Tell me about what your uh, childhood was like. Whereas a closed-ended question would be, was your childhood difficult? So you're going to get more of a descriptive response from a client when you ask an open-ended question. Also, clients are going to enjoy an open-ended question a lot more because usually people come to therapy because they want to talk. They got to get stuff off their chest and closed questions don't facilitate that. And closed questions also kind of intimate that you're not really interested in hearing the whole story. So all that is good information and something to think about. And it's definitely a important thing to learn when you're first starting out. Having said all that, a lot of instructors will say, never ask a closed-ended question. And this is the stupidest thing. Uh, there's a lot of things like this that you learn from novice counseling courses, like don't cross your legs, don't cross your arms, um, you know, lean in, don't lean back, all these kind of stupid things. Now, it's important to think about your body language and your empathy and the vibe you're giving across and how you're coming across to people and the sort of questions you're asking for sure. But therapy and communication and human relationships and attachment and transference and countertransference is too complicated for such simple rules. I can ask a closed question and absolutely be therapeutic. For example, I'm, if I have a good relationship with a client and we have a back and forth repertoire over time, I could ask him, so are you, are you feeling bad today? And if I ask in a certain way, it's clear to the client, I'm not asking a very simple question. I'm asking, I'm, the client knows based on our relationship and maybe based on my body language or the way I ask or whatever, that I'm interested in hearing from him in a very elaborate way, even though I just asked a closed question. I'm saying, so are you, are you feeling bad today? And uh, in those novice classes, they will say that's a bad question. Don't ask that. But that's silly. So, you you know, it's sort of like I'm guessing if you went to art school and they would say never use these two colors together or never mix a abstract uh, style with a, you know, Dada style. <laughs> I don't know anything about art, but. That there's, I'm sure there are things you learn, but then you hear from the masters and they're just like, well, yeah, if you want, but you know, so all the greats broke the rules. Now, being a therapist isn't about breaking the rules, but it's just way more complicated than that. And if you actually looked at seasoned, experienced, effective therapists, you would have a hard time uh, figuring out the rules of what you're supposed to do. That's why whenever you watch the masters, Whitaker, Satir, uh, you know, other uh, people, <laughs> Winnicott, who's off the top of my head, Jung, I'm supposed, I'm guessing, um, uh, uh, let's see, Ellis, Rogers, Pearls, all these people, there are a, there's a wide variety of the ways in which they acted as therapists, and yet many, many people consider them to be extremely effective. It's about being my, it, it's more of a philosophy and a paradigm or a place that you are at or an understanding or a wisdom. I, and I always say that, that it, it comes down to wisdom. There's no, you can't teach wisdom. 
Wisdom is something you gain through experience. Now, you can teach people along the way to help them gain wisdom. You can teach people things that will help them develop their wisdom. But wisdom is something developed, and good therapists are wise. They understand things that go way beyond just rules and go way beyond even the ability to explain them. And that's why therapy is such a beautiful thing because it involves humans that are squishy and messy and particular and uh, you know you have to be able to adjust as a therapist to to many different kinds of people and different situations and relationships so so just keep that in mind patron robert you also ask here how do you know when you have enough information to begin forming a goal or treatment plan so that's a good question again it it's impossible for me to explain that that's something that you gain through wisdom. It seems like such a simple thing, right? And they teach it in a, often in a very simplistic way of just like, okay, pro, you know, conduct your assessment, establish the goal, and develop the treatment plan and have the client sign off on the treatment plan. And they'll often provide examples in the books and in classes that are extremely simplistic, like um, – Hello, client. What would you like to work on in therapy? And the client says, Well, I've been down lately. The therapist says, Tell me more. The client says, Well, I have been having trouble motivating myself to do things that normally I felt pleasure in and that I had high level of motivation for. I have been feeling sad and crying a lot. And I've been thinking about suicide therapist. Interesting. Have you been having issues with appetite client? Yes. How did you know therapist? It sounds to me like you might be suffering from depression. Depression is blah, blah, blah. Anyway, let's work. You know, <laughs> you get the picture. And I don't fault these educators for providing these examples. You, you, you got to boil it down to something and teach something. Therapy is never like that. I've never had a therapy session that even approximated that kind of conversation. It is so much more variable and human than than that. I suppose there are some clinics, say, that specialize in things like depression where the sessions might look like that. But in my career and all the people that I work with, no one has anything like that. So it's much more squishy than that. Um, so how, so it's a good question that Robert has, you know, how do you know when you have enough information to begin forming a goal or a treatment plan? So I'll just tell you from, from the way that I operate, I can develop a goal and a treatment plan within like three minutes of the first session. And it's because again, of that, experience that I have, it doesn't take me much information to know what people are trying to tell me. Now, I don't just throw out a goal. I'll be, you know, I'll check in with them. So it kind of sounds like you want to work on this. The other thing is, is you, knowing the sort of ways of uh, phrasing goals that will resonate with the client, but also make sense in terms of a treatment plan that you actually, if you're, especially if you're using insurance, you have to submit all that or you might have to submit all that. And so, for example, a client comes in, you know, they, they seem to have a lot of 
different things they're working on. Their spouse cheated on them. They are concerned about things at work. And you're, you know, if you're a novice therapist, you're like, oh, where do I begin here? It sounds like there's a work thing. Sounds like, whereas for me, my style is such that I will try to kind of um, rope it all into one goal. And I might say something like, okay, it sounds like you're having a lot of concerns about the way your life is going and where it has gone previous to this. And it sounds like you want to explore um, all those things. It you, you, sounds like you want to talk about them a lot, get them off your chest, get some support, get some perspective from me. Is that right? And they'll be like, yeah, that sounds good. And it also sounds like this past infidelity, the status of your romantic relationship right now, and your work situation is also part of that. Sounds like, yeah, yeah. Okay, so right there in my head, I've established a goal. I've probably written down, at least in note form, what I just said in my notes, my psychotherapy notes for that, and I'll translate that to the file after the session. So I that could happen within the first 25 seconds of the first session. <laughs> so right there, um, I have enough information. I've established a goal and a tree, and then I might recommend, okay, so on this how often do you want to meet do you want to meet every week do you want to meet every two or three weeks what you know what are you looking for and they might be like well i was thinking you know once every two weeks and i might say okay given what you want to work on every two weeks sounds totally like a good idea so let's do that let's meet every two weeks and work on that so that's the first minute of the first session now if you're just starting out as a therapist it's going to take you a lot longer to be able to do that because you don't have a sense of what you're missing and what you're gaining. Plus, you probably aren't very good at thinking on your toes. That's another thing that that wisdom provides you, is you can think on your toes in a way that you just can't get from reading a book or reading, you know, vignettes. Being able to think on your toes is one of the most helpful things to have as a therapist and probably doesn't develop Again, 5, 10, 15 years in, especially for certain kinds of things. Suicide um, assessment and safety planning is one of those things that we all need to be able to do and you're expected to do, but you shouldn't be expected to think on your toes. So you, so for someone like I have an intern right now who has a client who has, is suffering from suicidality and, and you know, quite a bit of chaos, and so the... Um, the situation is such that I have to help this supervisee week in, week out with what to do. And so the therapist uh, hears things from the client, does what the therapist can. The therapist comes to me. I say, okay, you did half of what you were supposed to do, which is great. Now you need to go back and do the other half, which is blah, blah, blah. Now, I don't need to do that. I can do that right in the moment. Why? Because I have done it so many times. One. Two, I've had 20 plus years to study it and to think about it. I also don't have a lot of things interfering with my process, like paranoia about being sued. Because, again, through experience, I've gained a, a just a sense. And, and that's why I call it wisdom, because it's not even necessarily knowledge. Like, 
I have a, you know, let's say I have a client who is suicidal. I don't have time to think like, oh shit, am I going to get sued? How do I cover my ass? You know, what was the training again? I don't have time to kind of go to my memory bank and, and work through that. I have to, th- I have to evaluate what to do and have a sense of, of the landscape and decide on what to do in less than a second. I don't have any time to think. Now, I could if I wanted to, I, and I tell my interns and my supervisees this, is if you're in a bind, just say, okay, give me a second, I need to think. Or give me a second, I need to walk down the hall and call my supervisor. Or give me a, or I'll, I'll, we'll address this at the next session. There's nothing wrong with saying, I need time to think. I, I'm not going to be able to do a good enough job right now. But how nice it is for me, given that I've been a therapist and a professor for 20 plus years, that I can think of it in a, in a split second. I was not like that in the beginning. I wasn't even close to that. With suicide assessment, I wasn't even really like that until the past, I don't know, three or four years, because it, that's a complicated thing. There's a lot of legal and ethical things to consider, and there's a lot of uh, knowledge about suicide. That's why I did all the deep dives on suicide that I did. Part, you know, mostly because I wanted to help all all you clinicians out there with that. But also as a side benefit, honestly, is all that prep and recording and the you know researching that I did. I became this mini expert on suicide assessment and prevention and treatment um, along the way, and I incorporated that into my bones so that when I'm in front of a client. I don't have to think about it. It just comes out of me. And, and, and that's something that is, I know, anxiety-provoking to novice therapists. They're just like, so you're telling me I have to wait like all those years before I feel confident in what I'm doing? You know, just, just give me a, a form to follow or tell me what to do. You know, sim- similar with ethics decision-making. People are just like, you know, just tell me what to do. Do, do I accept gifts or do I not accept gifts? What, you know, is it ethical? What, what's the rule here? And that's just not how therapy works. It's much more complicated than that. And to reduce it to those kinds of rules is, is actually to, to potentially mistreat your clients on, on, in some ways. And so uh, it, it just takes time. And that's why for a lot of you clinicians, you listen to podcasts like my podcast because you realize, look, I need to, I need to continue to absorb things. I need to continue to talk about things. I need to continue to explore things. Again, it's one of the glorious things about this job is you never really master it. And so there's always a challenge ahead. If you like challenges, <laughs> there's always there's always one ahead of you. And uh, so that's what I'll say about that. All right, let's take a break. And when I get back, let's talk about another email. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Become a patron by going to patreon.com. That's how we know you like what we're doing. Also, if you're already a patron and you want to be a higher tier patron, that's always appreciated. Every time someone does that, I get a little email saying that you've done it. And it's often people that I recognize. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that person. Uh, patron Liz from Michigan writes in, I remember her, she actually came to my house for a live podcast. That was fun. Patron Liz wrote in and said, I'm currently working as a licensed professional counselor at a group practice. I am leaving the group practice soon because I'm going into private practice. 
I have four clients that the group practice referred to me outside of my Psychology Today profile. The owner spoke to her lawyer, stating that those in-house referrals are considered, quote-unquote, trade secrets. And if they choose to follow me into my private practice, she wants me to offer to purchase these trade secrets so I can have those clients follow me. She said that the cost would be based on a percentage per session of the clients you take out period of three. So I'm just going to chime in here in case, because sometimes, you know, you non-clinicians maybe need some background on this. So for therapists in the United States, we often are working in three main venues. We're either in private practice or it's just, you know, a sole proprietorship, essentially. And that's what I'm doing. You have an office or you work from home and you see clients and you charge, you're, you're, you're a one-person business. You know, maybe you have an accountant or something, but you do everything yourself. Occasionally, you might have like a, 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 a calendar person or something. Anyway, the other situation is a group practice, and these can vary in their uh, configurations from just a loose conglomeration of various private practitioners to a very um, centralized uh, administration that actually hires all the therapists to work in the group practice and, um, and, and everything in between. And then the third venue is working at a mental health agency in the community that often involves using Medicaid, Medicare, this kind of thing. Anyway, so it's very common for therapists when they're starting out to go into group practice because the group practice will often give you clients and the group practice will often give you a office and some camaraderie with colleagues and some guidance about getting things going. But usually after a while in group practice, you start um, feeling the pain of having to give up a, a high percentage of your fee to the group practice. Usually someone like me who is experienced and getting a lot of referrals will start a group practice. Like I could start a group practice right now if I wanted to. I could get all my, you know, post-grad supervisees and all the students and all the people I know in Seattle who are starting out and I could get them into a group practice and I would take say 30, 40, 50% of their fee. So the, the people in my group practice, they would charge $150, and I would get 60, 70, 80 of those dollars. Now, what I give to the therapists are ready-made clients, an office, maybe free supervision, forms, uh, malpractice help, maybe even helping them charge insurance, even though they're still under supervision. So, uh, so it's a win-win, but... Eventually, it becomes a win-lose because someone like Liz eventually is like, hey, I, sh I should be getting all the money because I'm doing all the work and I feel like I've gotten to that point where I could get my own clients without needing a group practice. I could get my own office, my own supervision or whatever without needing a group practice. So that's what Liz is doing. Now, the group practices will often, in some agencies, honestly, will often have what they call a non-compete clause. I don't know if that's the official term for it, but essentially what that means is that as the therapist leaves the group practice, the therapist has a bunch of clients. They might have 30 clients that the, or more that, that they have from working at that group practice. 
Well, t- for the group practice, so let's just say if it were me. So say I own the group practice, and I every you know ninety nine percent of the clients say you know Liz was my uh, group practice person, and I I hire her. I trust her. I give her supervision. I give her guidance. I give her an office. I support her. You know, I, I give her a full load eventually, and she does all the work, but I did all the work to get the reputation and all the legal stuff in place to get her those clients. So again, it's a win-win. Now, uh, and, and make no joke or make no, no bones about it, the owner... You know, they often set up these group practices so they can just make money without doing much, I guess. Um, That's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, what you do in business, right? You're always trying to lower your labor and increase your income per hour of that labor. Anyway, so it's all, you know, normal stuff. Anyway, I don't know if these group practices owners are rolling in money, by the way. I don't think it's that easy to make that much money. But anyway. And to be also to be clear, often people like me who open a private practice are almost doing it out of altruism to help young therapists and also to um, provide more therapy to the service or to the community. So I'm not going to say that they're all just blood, you know, or money hungry um, people. Anyway, so let's say that Liz was my person. I give her all these clients. Um, she gets some clients on her own, but I gave her most of her clients. And then one day she's like, you know what? I'm going to go into private practice. And then I'm like, oh my God, she's going to take away so much of my income, you know, because she's going to, if she takes away all, you know, 50 of those clients, say there's 30 appointments on the books per um, week, well, 30 times, say, 80 is what two thousand four hundred bucks a, a week, so I'd be personally losing out on twenty five hundred dollars a week if she leaves and takes all the clients with her. Plus, it's, you know, to, I would have to get a a new person in the door, a new therapist to replace her. It would take me months to fill her schedule, to supervise her. Maybe she wouldn't be as good of a therapist. All this kind of stuff. So. These business owners have this incentive to have these non-complete compete clauses where, or I don't know if they're called non-complete, anyway, where they will say, you can't scalp my clients. You can't take away all these clients because you're going to destroy my income. (laughs) And it'd be like if you're in a, you know, a hair salon or something, it'd be similar to that. Or um, I don't know, law firm. There's probably other kinds of things. Anyway, the point is, is that the business owners have an incentive to work in these clauses into the contracts that prevents the therapist from doing this. But there's all these ethics, which I'll get into, and laws that I'll get into in a second. Now, what they're telling her, what Liz is telling us that they're telling her, is that, she, you know, to read this email, the owner spoke to her lawyer stating that those in-house referrals are considered trade secrets. And if they choose to follow me into private practice, she wants me to offer to purchase these trade secrets so I can have those clients follow me. So what Liz's group practice owner is saying is, if you want to take these clients with you, fine, 
but you're going to have to pay us a fee. And I'm guessing the fee is not small. I'm guessing it's not $5 per client. I'm guessing it's a lot more than that. So to go on with the email here. This is confusing as hell. I am following my counselor code of ethics regarding solicitation. I've never heard of paying a group practice money. I have had clients follow me in the past. They just looked me up online and called me. What, what clients do outside of this practice is their own choice, right? Once I terminate with clients, they're allowed to work with me again, right? I feel so bamboozled and bullied. What are the best, you know, what about the best interests of the clients? I don't want to act unethical or be taken to court over a couple of clients. I emailed an old supervisor about this, but cannot meet with her until next month. I am really nervous and worried. Have you, have you ever heard of such a thing? End of email. Well, since I'm not a lawyer, I consulted with one about this question, Liz, and here's the answer. And I consulted with Frances Shopik. You might recognize her from previous episodes. And she offers services to, you know, all therapists out there that need some help around this. And she knows everything about this sort of stuff, including all the other things that involve <laughs> counselor law stuff and ethics stuff. So go to francisshopik.com. That's F-R-A-N-S-F-R-Frances with an E, Frances, Frances, Shopik, S-C-H-O-P-I-C-K. Dot com. So she says, have your listener, have Liz check out this statute. Now, I didn't, when I asked Francis, I didn't tell her that you were from Michigan, Liz. So she just gave me the Washington stuff. Um, so you want to check, uh, Liz, your Michigan laws around these kinds of things. So um, in Washington, anyway, we have RCW 49.62.020, and it came into effect January 1, 2020. And she says, basically, it states that non-competes are unconscionable with certain earning levels. And I looked in the law, and it says exceeding $100,000 per year. Um, so, And it also has to be disclosed at the time of, of acceptance of employment. So... I don't know what the laws are in your area in Michigan, Liz, but again, I would, I would look it up. Um, she also, Francis also says, on top of that, both RCW and WAC state that a client has both the right and responsibility to choose the treatment provider and modality that best suits their needs. This suggests that an agency cannot forbid them from choosing a former employee for services. So in other words, what Francis is saying is that it explicitly states in Washington law that a client has the right to, you know, follow Liz from group practice into private practice because they because um, a client has a right to get the best service that they want, and it's well recognized in our field that to start over with a new therapist would be a hardship to a client. Also. It, it's not a guarantee that that other therapist is a good fit for that client. You can't just switch therapists week to week and expect your therapy to uh, be optimal. It's well known in our field that uh, the relationship is an important factor in outcomes, 
And if the relationship is good, then it's important that that relationship get um, continued if if it's allowed. So in in some ways, it's not only illegal for a uh, agency to prevent that, but we definitely can say that it's a potential ethical violation to prevent a client from seeing the therapist that they want to see. Now, what the agency might say, what the group practice might say is, well, we're not preventing this from happening. We just have a fee associated with it. But going back again to Washington law, they say that these kinds of non-competes are um, unconscionable, uh, which I find to be a wonderful legal term. Um, she also, Francis also says, I've never heard about these quote unquote trade secrets theory analysis. She says, I have to say it's creative. <laughs> and me too. I mean, what a weird way of treating human beings, treating clients as if they're trade secrets. It's such a weird way of, I'm guessing that the owner of the uh, group practice has a friend who works in trade law of some sort and is therefore um, framing it in that sense and is not an expert on mental health law like Francis Schopik is. Francis Schopik goes on to say, um, whether it would stand up in court is another question. I would argue that it treats human beings as property, which has serious problems. A human being is not a widget and a, and a person's therapy, if anyone's trade secret, is the client's. I would argue that even under the theory of copyright law, the therapist has sway over the paper the notes are written on. And she goes on to explain all this legal stuff that I don't even understand, and it would sound funny coming out of my mouth. But anyway, basically what Francis Schopik is saying is, you know, it looks dubious. Of course, what Francis Schopik would say is, don't uh, consider this to be individualized. Advice, legal advice, the only way that a competent attorney can provide that advice is if you consult with them, um, you know, in the professional way where you can have a back and forth and there's an actual professional relationship there. But that was her off the cuff reaction over email to Liz's question. And yeah, it, it, now what I would say to Liz as a f colleague is check the laws in your state. If you don't know the laws in your state or it's intimidating to you, then one, find a Francis Shopik in your state that or, a, you know, a friend that because for me, if I have a question, I ask Francis Shopik <laughs> and or Tiffany Chuom, who both know a lot of stuff. I also have a friend, um, Joe Schaub, that I've had on the podcast before. So I have I've compiled these lawyers and ethics experts that I can ask. And at the very least, they'll know who I should ask. And often they have the answer. So Liz, you might want to find someone that, is, but all the people that I just mentioned are experts in Washington state law. They're not experts in Michigan law. Now they might help. They might be able to figure out Michigan law. Now you can also ask Francis Schopik yourself, Tiffany Chuom yourself. Uh, again, francisshopik.com. You can go there and ask her that question. It's well worth you know paying some money for these kinds of relationships. Also, so you know, check the law in your state. Also, find a colleague and or hire an attorney to kind of help you with that. The other thing is is uh, you might want to check to see if you signed a uh, an employment contract at the beginning that involved any of these things. From the way you're writing, Liz, from Michigan, it sounds like this wasn't decided upon from the beginning. 
And if it's not decided upon from the beginning, then you can pretty much guarantee that it's bullshit. <laughs> you can't just in, in, uh, initiate some kind of um, fee or some kind of condition on your employment as you're quitting. <laughs> you know, it'd be like changing your pay all of a sudden. Like, oh, you're qu- quitting? Okay, well, we're not going to pay you for the last month of your work because that's our that's our new contract. It's like you can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. So also I've worked with a lot of people on this question because agencies and group practices will often do this um, and my supervisees and other people will come to me and say, what do I do? And my general statement to to my supervisees has been, uh, it's not ethical for people to get in the way of a client's access to good treatment. And if we follow that principle, then we usually know what to do in a situation like that. Um, So there's that. Okay, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous fan and psychology student, she said. Anonymous fan and psychology student. I was wondering if you could talk about the newly dissolved False Memory Syndrome Foundation, Foundation and how it has tricked the public and media into doubting survivors of trauma and the therapists that treat them. My feeling is that therapists in general avoid trauma and don't ask about it enough rather than persistently trying to force their clients into talking about it. What is your opinion? I find it absurd that many therapists manipulate people into thinking abuse has happened when it hasn't. People with a nice upbringing don't suddenly bring up incest charges against their parents because they met with a therapist a couple of times. Yet that is what the foundation claimed and tricked the media into believing. Speaking to my fellow psychology students, I get the feeling they actually believe horrible manipulative therapists who are out there creating false memories in people and that this is common, particularly psychodynamic therapists. I'm angry at my school for talking more about the malleability of memory than about the horrible experiences of abuse trauma. I feel alone. I feel like my professors and fellow classmates don't realize they are minimizing how common this type of trauma is and how devastating it is. Some people in my class don't even believe it's important to ask about the past that involves trauma. They don't get that the con- they don't get that there's a connection between the therapist and the client that can be healing in and of itself. I don't know what to do with all of my anger. I just in general feel like they missed the mark on this one and sometimes I wish I could scream in class. Being abused messes you up and your perpetrator will probably tell you that everyone else uh, and everyone else that it didn't happen and you will think you are crazy and you will doubt yourself. End of email. Yeah, I get your anger. I've been there too many times. Um, there's a lot of different opinions in, among clinicians and among professors and among colleagues and among, you know, educators, blah, blah, blah. From the sound of it, it's possible that you're in a CBT echo chamber. Now, there's nothing wrong with CBT. I use cognitive therapy all the time. I use behavioral therapy all the time. But there is a s- phenomenon or a 
sociological pocket that I've experienced that I might frame as a CBT echo chamber. There's also a solution-focused echo chamber, a psychoanalytic echo chamber, a Jungian echo, echo chamber, a gestalt echo chamber, a family systems echo chamber. And it's possible that you're in a either a CBT echo chamber or a solution-focused narrative echo chamber, postmodern echo chamber, I'm not quite sure, but... Basically, in the in a CBT echo chamber, it's it's disloyal to talk about the past if you're a clinician. So, you know, your fellow classmates are only following the lead of the, the professors. There's actually a good possibility you have other classmates that feel exactly the same way as you do, but you feel disempowered to speak up because of how pervasive the premises are that keep you silent. And so, in the echo chamber it's considered disloyal to talk about the past because to talk about the past, you're going away, they perceive away from CBT or whatever sort of model they're following. And they want you to stick to the present because that's what their model proposes that they trade in the here and now, shall we say. And since trauma involves the past and a lot of childhood trauma means a long-term therapy they don't like that. So it's possible you're in a brief therapy that involves talking about the present and they don't want to talk about problems. They want to talk about solutions. Um, by the way, I just, I'll just state this. You can have long-term CBT therapy. You can have long-term schema therapy. Uh, so you can live in the CBT world and have a long-term – now, it, you need to treat trauma, you'd have to have a really good relationship, which involves acknowledging all the humanistic and psychodynamic aspects of, of therapy. But you could call yourself a CBT therapist, a schema therapist, and but work in the long term and treat trauma effectively. It just means that you don't deny trauma, and it also means that you recognize that the treatment can take a long time. So anyway, uh, it's possible that you're in an echo chamber that downplays trauma, and sometimes they even, not only do they downplay the past and downplay trauma, but sometimes they also develop a sort of adversarial attitude and approach to the clients when it comes to trauma in the past. There'll be lots of talk in these programs about, like, diverting clients away from the past and toward the present, and, you know, you could imagine that would be very alienating to a client. Now, it can be helpful. It it I incorporate those philosophies into the way I treat clients, but I don't only do that. There are some times where I actually determine that it's best if I actually adopt that attitude. All the therapies have merit, including this brief CBT model that is probably being taught to you. Uh, absolutely has merit, tons of merit, but it's not the only way to treat all of your clients. And so um, anyway... So, yeah, but at the core of all this, there's a dialectic that you're bringing up, anonymous fan of the podcast, is that there's a dialectic between our recognition of trauma, our advocacy for victims. You know, we we all recognize it's if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you recognize that it's obvious that trauma is awful and that it has long term effects and that we need to advocate for clients. We need to support them when they start to talk about it. Maybe it's 30 years later. And we need to recognize that that's a real thing that happens and advocate for them and empower them. Uh, so we that's clear. But 
there's a dialectic between that and a recognition that mem- memory is malleable and that there is such a thing as false memory syndrome. So um, there's both and they're kind of intention, but in my opinion, the way they live in me, it's not really intention because I can tell the difference in someone between the two. It's not hard to figure out, honestly, when you're treating someone and you have a good relationship with someone. But when we discuss these topics, we have to take care not to alienate either side because both sides have victims. And let me go through the history of this briefly in case you don't know. So in the beginning, say, I don't know, 80 years ago, you know, it's hard to know because societies are messy and there's not a clear line between these things. But a long time ago, there was this societal assumption or taught teachings that the past didn't really matter. And, and if you didn't really remember something, it didn't matter. And that being, you know, beat as a child or sexually abused as a child was either very, very, very rare, or it didn't really matter. You know, it's just, you know, pick yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and move on with your life. So, you know, we'll call that like pre therapy minded society or something. Then along comes therapists and other uh, clinicians and researchers, and they start to, you know, see, wow, trauma is associated with a lot of bad things later in life. Anxiety, depression, PTSD, all these personality disorders, uh, dropping out from school, drug abuse. There's just so many things that are related to childhood trauma. Uh, It seems like childhood trauma is a big deal. And then when they start looking into the trauma, they start seeing these syndromes where the abuser will basically make the client feel like they're crazy, gaslighting the client, as as this anonymous person is saying. And the um, client, what am I saying? The, the victim of the uh, abuse can sometimes believe, because they've been gaslit, that they weren't actually abused, that they actually wanted to do all these things. And so, you know, we started to look into that, like, whoa, like there's this, there's this whole world that these victims and perpetrators are living in that seems abhorrent to us. But when we study it, we can actually see the effects of it and we have to recognize that. So the pendulum swung really hard and this was good. Suddenly we were seeing, wow, more and more people are coming forward. It's sort of like the Me Too movement where all of a sudden, you know, this is probably 50 years ago or something-ish. All of a sudden we're, we're like, whoa, there's all this this victimization and abuse and terrible, terrible things that are going on right next door or even right in our own house. And we just don't even know it. It's, it seemed crazy to think that these things were happening before. And now we're seeing it everywhere. It's everywhere. We, and we have to advocate for victims. We're angry as a society, as a mental health field. We were, we were given a mandate to address this and, and help clients and maybe even help them access their memories. So the pendulum sway, swung really far toward, towards that side of the dialectic. But then some stupid therapist came along, good meaning, good meaning therapist, but therapists that didn't really understand the deal. And we're taking it too far. And they were being very pushy with their clients. And um, they would actually uh, form memories in clients. And there's a whole long explanation I could give for this. But basically, if I take a four-year-old and I interview them in a way that 
basically intimates I'm looking for a particular answer, I can basically, through very subtle, perhaps well-meaning interviewing techniques, form memories in that four-year-old's mind where you give them a lie detector test and the four-year-old believes, yes, I was sexually abused by my father, um, you know, 20 times in the past month and he put his penis in my, you know, blah, 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 and this is where he touched me and this is where he did it. And that sounds crazy, but if you have a therapist that either doesn't know what they're doing or knows what they're doing, you can absolutely create memories in a, in a child. You can sometimes create memories in, a, in adults, too, uh, depending on their sort of susceptibility to that kind of thing and, and where they're coming from and how much trust is built up between therapist and client. So, so we started to do – so our field, mental health professionals, were doing that to clients, and these were happening. It, was, it wasn't very common, but it was happening. It wasn't like all therapists were doing this to their clients, but, you know, it was happening. And as a result, many innocent people were going to prison for a very long time. And a lot of innocent people were suffering because of this, because they were being accused of, you know, being perpetrators when they didn't do anything. And so, the, and, and that was seen as vindication for this false memory thing, because therapists were able to extract these memories from these clients. And um, now, all the good therapy that was happening was not getting reported on. It was when these cases started to come to light, like, whoa, you know, the, the, ch- the four-year-old would grow up and, you know, 10 years later say, actually, I was never sexually abused by my dad. That therapist implanted all that in my head. And, I, you know, I want to go back to court because I have new data, you know, and new evidence to say that my father is actually innocent. There were a lot of cases like that, and a lot of cases were overturned. And then the media pounces on that and reports on that, and therapists read the news, and so therapists go, whoa, now this is good, you know, we're, we're helping to, uh, you know, eliminate this phenomenon of, acu- of, of convicting innocent people. We're also learning about how memory can be malleable. We're also learning about therapy techniques of interviewing and assessing these kinds of things. Uh, there's a whole lot I could say about this, of the ethics of like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so this was a good, this was, this was a good thing. This, this false memory syndrome awareness was a good thing for our industry. It was a good thing for our society. But the pendulum swung too far <laughs> and some people took it too far and they would say things like there's no such thing as recovered memory and memory is malleable and when people accuse uh, people years later we can't really trust them because memory is malleable uh, this is uh, taking it too far it's not like our memories are nothing you know now we recognize memory is malleable but it's extremely unlikely that someone given a certain presentation would, you know, fully believe that they had been abused in uh, X amount of times with these details. Um, it's, it's extremely unlikely that those memories were formed somehow out of thin air or even in an interview with a caring therapist. It happens, particularly when there's a certain technique that is done by the therapist, but Uh, The fact that someone remembers uh, or suddenly remembers abuse that they went through a long time ago, that that doesn't automatically mean that 
that it's false. In fact, it, it usually means that it did indeed happen. And we look for corroborating evidence and, and we find that. So um, where are we today in terms of the pendulum? I think we're still too far into the there's no such thing as recovered memory. Now, if you want to hear my full discussion of repressed memory and recovered memory, listen to my episode that I think I did a few years ago. Um, maybe I'll do a rerun of it. But just just a quick synopsis of it is that uh, repressed memory in the old, there's been, there's been many definitions. So let me provide the definition that I use, which is that when you're young, and or at any age really, but particularly when you're young and you're going through something difficult, whether it's a one-time event or a 10-year event, and it's kept secret by the perpetrator on purpose because they don't want to get caught, the victim um, often will compartmentalize those memories because there's no point in recalling them. If, if you go to Disneyland and you go on a fun roller coaster ride, and you come to school on Monday, um, you're excited about that roller coaster. You also kind of want to brag to your friends that you went to Disneyland. So you're going to talk about it. You're going to be like, guess what I did this weekend? What? I went to Disneyland. Really? Yeah, I went on this roller coaster. And this is what happened. And this is what happened. And you might have pictures of it. And you. So this memory is reinforced by the availability of it and the the social acceptance of it and the motivation to brag about it. And so through that talking of the event, it solidifies the the memory. Well, if you were sexually abused by a priest or your mother or your older sister or you, I don't know, those kinds of things, you have, and you're told if you tell anyone they're going to kill you or something, then after it's done, you have no reason to talk about it. You have no reason to remember it because it's painful to remember. And so an hour later after being victimized, you might just be like, okay, moving on with life. What's the point? It's going to happen again because it keeps happening. So what's the point in recalling it? What's the point in, you know, and by the way, if you suffer from PTSD or any kind of trauma reactivity, you might want to check in with your body right now as I talk about this and, and just skip the rest of the episode because I'm going to continue to talk about this. Take care of yourself in that way. Don't, don't ha- have this podcast be a trigger to spike your trauma reactivity. It's not worth it. Or take a break, take some breath, get grounded, come back um, maybe tomorrow or something, listen to the rest of this and check in with your body. So... Um, so you don't have any reason to remember that. Now, if you chose to remember it, you could. Think about like your own memory right now. You know, what did you do on your birthday, on your last birthday? You know, just, just take a couple seconds to think about it. I'll give you three seconds. One, two, three. Now, for some of you, it just popped in your head because either it was so memorable or it was... Um, something that you've talked about or was, or just happened last week or something. And so for you, the memory just popped in your head. But there's another group of you who, I gave you three seconds, you still can't remember. You're still, you're still like, wait, what did I do for my birthday? I don't know what I did. Well, if I gave you some more time, um, say if I asked you, well, how old did you, you know, well, what birthday was it? Well, I turned 32 years old. Okay. Well, what do you typically do? What time of year was it? Um, maybe pull out your Google calendar and, and see if that 
sparks any memory. Maybe you took a picture of that night, you know, scroll, scroll through your phone to see if you have a picture. Well, some of you would remember, you know, through me asking you questions or just through you thinking about it and concentrating, looking for associations, you would remember, oh, yeah, that's right, I went karaoke with my friends, or I just stayed in and watched friends because that's my thing. Um, You would remember. Well, that's a recovered memory. We could call it a repressed memory, (laughs) depending. So at one point when I asked you the question, you had zero memory. You're like, no idea. I have I have no idea what happened back then. And then I asked you a few questions and boom, you have the memory. Well, that's all that it is in therapy. When I talk with people about their past and their trauma, um, now I as a, 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 because I'm a clinician that's aware of false memory syndrome, I know how to avoid implanting memories in, in people, which means that um, essentially you don't lead people and also you, you don't give off the vibe that you're looking for a particular answer. You're, you're purely just open to whatever they come up with. You also don't necessarily jump on every supposition they have. They're like, well, you know, I think I might have been sexually abused by my dad. You don't jump on that and be like, okay, tell me more. You know, you're just like, okay, so I hear you questioning. You're not quite sure. Do you want to explore that some more? You know, you're, you just stay very, you know, um, exploratory and that kind of thing. So, uh, and you also know as a therapist which clients are more susceptible to suggestion and which clients are probably not as suggestible. Um, and that's a, another talk altogether. But anyway, so you just had, for some of you, you that when I asked you at first what you did on your birthday, you didn't remember. After a few questions or thinking about it a little longer, boom, you not only have a memory, but you have a full set of memories. All these images, all these things happen. Okay, so imagine you're sexually abused by a priest when, or a teacher or a parent or an older sibling or a neighbor, and you are terrified of that situation. You, you never recall it. You never talk about it. Fast forward 50 years and you're 59 years old and you're in therapy. And if you, you know, someone asks you, have you ever been sexually abused as a child? You're like, nope, nah, nothing like that ever happened. As therapy goes on, you start kind of zeroing in on things and your therapist starts saying, you know, you have some signs that you were sexually abused as growing up. I know you said that you haven't been, but, you know, sometimes people, it takes them a while to remember that kind of thing. Um, do you want to explore that? And, you know, okay, let's explore that. Well, you know, is there any relationship that you had with anyone growing up that might have the potential for you to have some blocked off memories about, you know, this can take several sessions, blah, blah, blah. And you can imagine that a 49 year old woman who was sexually abused from like the age of five until she was eight, And you could imagine that she might start to zero in on those memories and then go like, oh my God, yeah, something did happen to me. Okay, that's a recovered memory. Now, some people mistake this as completely cut off from your consciousness. And what I'm saying is that there's a difference between completely cut off from your consciousness and that layer of distance between easily recalled memories and memories that take a little work to recall. 
So it's not like it's completely out of your consciousness. It's just it just takes a circuitous uh, road to eventually get you to the memory in the same way that it took some of you to remember what you did for your last birthday. So that's recovered memory. And uh, a lot of people don't understand that. And if you are the sort of program and therapist and professor that deals in the here and now and you don't like to talk about the past because it's inconvenient or you really like your model of therapy because you wrote a book about it and it only involves the here and now and the present and you associate talking about trauma in the past with that evil psychodynamic therapy which is quote-unquote not evidence-based which it is fuckers it's completely evidence-based you just have to you know actually look for it which it's out there um, it's not hard to find, by the way. Uh, the same research uh, articles that demonstrate CBT is effective with some things. Um, psychodynamic therapy, interpersonal therapy, relational therapy is absolutely effective also. Um, not always with the same things, but um, with, with things. Anyway, um, if you're in a program that's like that, then you're probably going to be in the camp that recovered memory, or or when you're giving a presentation, you might talk for a long time about how recovered memory is bullshit and that there's this false memory syndrome. And then you'll talk a little bit about this thing called trauma as this side note thing. And I'm guessing that's what you ran into anonymous person. And what's happening is possibly people are being harmed uh, at the, or at the very least they're not being treated well enough, right? To have a program that, overemphasizes false memory syndrome and underemphasizes trauma is, you know, as you know, because you're a psychology student, counseling student, it, it hurts you because I'm guessing you were traumatized and it, and it hurts your feelings and it makes you feel marginalized and silenced, which is wrong to you and immoral to you. But it also sends out all these clinicians who are inept and have no idea how to treat this. Now, they're probably really good with certain things like phobias or uh, simple depression, and they're great for that. But when someone comes into their office with, um, you know, these compartmentalized memories of which there are many clients in, in this category, then these sorts of clinicians are, are either going to be ineffective or even harm their clients. Um, by their lack of uh, a broad spectrum education and supervision. And it's such a dumb thing, too, because, um, I, I don't know, it's just so narrow-minded. And it's such a black-and-white way of thinking, too, right? It's like, um, you know, our therapy works, and therefore everything else is stupid. It's like, no, all therapies work, and all perspectives are valuable, and um, you don't have to latch on to one thing to have any kind of stability or credibility or something. We can exist in a gray world where lots of things apply and there are lots of different ways of looking at this. So allow it into your life, people. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. If you have some thoughts, let me know. I'm curious what you think about the pendulum of false memory and and um, acknowledging memory and uh, what you've run into in your programs. I guess I'm really curious about that. You clinicians out there, what echo chambers are you in regarding this? What are you hearing? Do you see value of past and trauma or do you see a downplay of it? And what sort of echo chamber are you in? 
Is it a CBT echo chamber? Is it a postmodern echo chamber? Is it a family therapy? Is it a psychodynamic? Is it a humanistic? You know, what kind of echo chamber do you exist in? And please take care of yourself, as always, because you deserve it, as always. (laughs) 